do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is Sean Patrick Terrio, and I am stoked to have with me Ed Hennigan with Data Foundry, CTO. And Ed has been with Data Foundry for the better part of a quarter century. I just noticed that and it blew my mind. But Ed, I'd love uh, just very briefly if you could let our listeners know who and what Data Foundry is, and then we can kind of dig into some of the backstory. Sure. So uh, Data Foundry, we do uh, 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 co-location data centers. Uh, we've had a strong focus on retail market shifting into, I guess, that blurred line between large retail and wholesale. Uh, uh, all. Um, no venture capital, no fully privately held. So a real focused uh, provider in our, in our markets. Awesome. And those markets are primarily, well, traditionally they've been in Texas, uh, mm-hmm. but you guys just recently did some expansion into Virginia, right? Uh, we've, our big investments are in Austin and Houston, uh, you know, ground up uh, data centers, co-location data centers. Um, we do have some retail space in Ashburn. And uh, we've done some work in, in overseas in some other places as well. Well, I know our paths initially crossed through the Internet Infrastructure Coalition uh, fly-in that we, we did together a few years back in D.C., uh, sitting down with a couple of the, the staffers and uh, congressmen and women and a handful of senators and the FBI. Yeah, and that's whatnot. right. Yeah. And that's when, um, I don't want to say I first learned about Data Foundry, but that's when I first met you and... Um, your your partner and the the founder of the company. What, what's his Ron. name? Ron. Ron. He yeah. looks like Wilford Brimley. Everybody remembers yes. him. I was just about to say he had the big cowboy hat on, um, and uh, he's quite quite the character. Very very knowledgeable, uh, uh, non standard typical infrastructure geek, but he definitely is a geek um, with a big cowboy hat. Yeah, he's an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur at heart. Well, you must be too. It, you know, doing some of the stalking that I did online about you and your background, prepping for this, I noticed that you don't you don't have a very traditional uh, story and background. Um, am I correct in that you you had some education growing up in Hawaii? 
Yeah, I grew up in Hawaii. That's right. Were yep. you born and raised in Hawaii? I was not. I was, you know, I was born in California. We moved to Brazil when I was two. And then um, when I was five, we moved to Hawaii and I lived, I lived and grew up there till I went off to college. Right on. And you went to college uh, in my home state, Illinois, in Peoria, correct? Yeah, that's right. So how the heck did you go from Honolulu, Hawaii to Peoria, Illinois, of all places? Uh, it was pretty random. It was it was pretty random. I, I'm um, you know in in my life I I I'm, I tend to be the leaf on the stream. You know I go where the currents and eddies push me and pull me. And uh, at a college fair in Hawaii, um, there uh, some of the representatives from the engineering and physics uh, schools within Bradley University uh, had a booth set up, and they were really friendly, chatty guys, and I got to like them. So I applied to college, go to college there, and that's where I ended up. Wow. And were you, so I take it you had an early STEM uh, passion and education. Yeah. You know, um, I, I look back and I think about, I, you know, that I think it seems like one of the things you like to do in your podcast is go into sort of the, the history of people and, and like what path they took to get to where they are in life. And I think about my path and I think about how random it was or, or, Maybe if if not random, at least how outside of my control it was, how how it was outside factors that let me, that you know, led me to be where I am today. Um, when I was uh, twelve years old, my dad saw this uh, this uh, this computer thing as being kind of a pretty cool and important thing. So he saved up and bought a Tandy one thousand, um, you know, eighty eighty eight Intel uh, PC running, you know, DOS 3.1 on it. And, uh, my mom got me, uh, a, it was literally the name of it was a big book of basic programs. And it was literally a like large format, a tall and wide, not very thick book full of programs that were written in the programming language basic. And this is before, you know, it didn't come with any CDs or floppy disks or anything. It was literally a printed book of programs that were written in basic that you could sit there and I would, I would fold it open and put a weight on it and I'd put it next to the computer and I would type in the programs. And like one of them was a maze generator and that was really cool. So I, I copied from a book into the computer, a maze generator, and I would run it over and over and over again and generate mazes and trace lines through them. And, and, uh, you know, I was 12 years old and I was, I basically learned how to program in basic uh, just by kind of figuring out what the heck those programs were doing, I would change things here and there, and I, I'd see how they would, how the programs would change, and I and I kind of figured out how they how they were working. Um, so you know that that was before that was. I, I'm I'm old enough that um, our high school required us to pass a typing test in order to graduate, and you know the typing test was literally on typewriters. You had to type 30 words a minute on physical typewriters, um, but I was just fine with that because I was I had been messing around so much on the computer that I was comfortable on a keyboard. Um, now I, I went to college to I, I was interested in engineering. I first tried mechanical engineering, then I tried electrical engineering, and I realized that engineering was actually hard. Um, and so I switched to physics, and physics was much more in line with how I thought and how I like to work and the part department was much more relaxed. Hmm. So I ended up with a, with a physics degree. Um, and about three quarters of the way through my physics degree, I had an aha moment. I realized 
I should have gone into computer science. That was really hmm. uh, where my interests were. Um, you know, I continue to do bits of programming here and there for a long time. Um, and even today, uh, people groan when they find my code. But every once in a while around this place, you'll run across some code that I had put in place to, to get something done. So, um, you know, programming is just a thing. It's just a component of everything. And you you must have met up very early on with Data Foundry and, and the work there. So how, how did that all materialize and evolve? Oh, yeah. So I had a, a couple friends at Bradley who were electrical engineers, um, really, really smart guys. One of those guys, he's now, or he's been at Texas Instrument doing amazing things for a long time. Anyway, they, um, they introduced me to Linux, and we had you know, a stack of like literally 100 floppy disks with a Linux installation of Linux 0.96 or 0.98. Um, and I worked in the, and this is a very circuitous and random answer to your question, but I worked, I got a job in the computing services department in college. So I sat at a help desk and I answered calls from professors and, and students who were having problems getting their computers to work. Um, but because I worked at the help desk, that meant I had a key to the computers. And the dorm rooms, every dorm room on campus came with a computer. Um, and like I said, since I, was, since I was in support, I had a key to the computer. So I, could, I unlocked the computer in my dorm room and put a hard drive into it. They were all netboot. They were all supposed to be locked down and secure. But I put a hard drive into mine, and we installed Linux on that computer. So I was the only one in the dorms who was not running DOS, Windows, whatever it was at the time. I was running Linux. And um, we set up, um, and I think the statute of limitations has expired, so we set up some pirate FTP servers on those. So we were sharing software across the Internet um, out of the dorm room. And, you know, not really supposed to do that kind of thing, but, hey, we did it. And we met up with a friend for, who was at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And together, we were, we were in this little scheme together. And it was just for fun. There was no, no upside to it whatsoever, just to see if we could do it. And this guy, uh, Jonah, Jonah Yokobaitis, he told me that he and his family were starting an ISP. Um, and around that time, I graduated from college with a physics degree, and I had absolutely no prospects for what the heck to do with myself. And so when Jonah said, you know, why don't you come down to Texas and, and, and join us as we start this ISP? I said, okay, sounds great. I love the internet. I love computers. I think this is all going to be really cool. I told my dad, um, yeah, thanks for funding college and my degree in physics. And now I'm going to go to Texas and start work, work at an ISP. I'm not, I wasn't a founder, but I was a uh, the first employee. And he looked at me and he's like, you mean email? So he'd been in, in corporate positions in the past. And so they had access to email and he was kind of unimpressed by this thing. Like, you, so you're going to bring email to people? Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, that's, I, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, they, they, they didn't say no. My parents didn't, didn't tell me it was a bad idea. Um, so I, I joined up with Jonah and his family uh, here in Austin, Texas. And then we got in our cars and drove down to San Antonio, Texas. And in San Antonio, we rented a 444 square foot uh, office suite 
And in the phone closet, we plugged in a bunch of um, 14.4 US robotics modems and hooked them up to a Livingston PM25 terminal server and turned the volume up on all the modems and put an ad in the newspaper and told people they can get on the internet and people would fax in, they would, they would, print, they would um, cut the ad out of the newspaper, put their name on it and uh, put their phone number on it and they would fax it to us and we would fax back their password and then we would sit there holding our breath and then the, a modem would ring and you could hear it negotiating and connecting and it was just, it was so exciting. That was 1994 and we, we got people onto the internet for the first time. So this is before, you know, nowadays, if you want to sign anybody up for anything, you just, you do, you get their email address and you send them their login information via email, or you just, you know, you give it to them. But back then nobody had email. So we had to fax all of their, here's the phone number to dial. And here's how you configure your computer to do it. And um, yeah, it was. uh, How were people paying for services back then? Uh, you know, they would mail in checks or they would come to the office with cash or check and hand it off. So one of, one of the things I did is I would sit at the front desk and people would come in and give me their check for the month. And how much, wh- what did it cost? For we, charged, we charged $20 a month for um, what we called an unlimited account. And the, um, the, the crazy thing was that before we had a single customer, uh, one of the ads we published gave people a discount if they signed up for a year, and we had people signing up for a year. So this is something nobody nobody had internet access. Mm-hmm. People only had the vaguest idea of what it was. This is really right when Netscape Mosaic was being released. It was that it was that fall or winter that the first web browser was being developed that had incremental rendering. Prior to that. The NCSA Mosaic web browser, um, it would take a web page and it would render it all in memory. And then only once it was done rendering would it would display anything on your screen. And that fall or winter, when Netscape came out and it would do, it would render as the web page was downloaded, it made a huge difference. Um, anyway, but no, nobody had any of that. And still, there were people who were mailing us $100 checks or $250 checks, whatever it was, to sign up for an entire year's worth of service. And it really blew our minds. And it, it, really, it really felt like, okay, pe- people think this is going to be something. People believe. And you weren't selling the modems themselves back then, were you? No, just a service. Just dial in. We were, were, we were never it- hardware. You never got into that that component of it. It was interesting. We um, in um, so from ninety four through probably like ninety eight or so, we had a really good run um, selling dial up internet access. And during that period, um, a lot of people, a lot of companies saw this internet thing as as growing rapidly and taking off and be you know, clearly becoming something important for the future. And so you had a lot of people entering that market and trying to become ISPs. In 1997, uh, I have an old issue of Boardwatch magazine. There was a Boardwatch internet provider directory from 1997. And it's about an inch thick. 
and it lists all the different ISPs that you could sign up for across the country. And in the 512 area code, in the Austin area code, there were 55 internet providers that you could choose from. And we were one of those 55. And every once in a while, a big name would come up. Oh, AT&T was going to get in the internet business. Um, In San Antonio, the local newspaper, the San Antonio Express News, decided to get in the internet business. And every time one of those big names came up, people told us, oh, you're, you know, you're dead now. These guys are really big. They're going to outmarket you or, you know, AT&T controls the phone lines. So they're going to be, they're going to be the big internet provider and you won't. Or, you know, San Antonio Express News, they can publish all the ads they want for free. So they're going to kill you. Uh, And none of that ever happened. But what did happen was we were locked out of the, the cable network and the the copper DSL network effectively, um, and those all was on high bandwidth connections to the homes. We knew we wouldn't have access to, and so we did see that we were eventually going to get killed as a dial by his piece. So that's when we decided to shift over to co-location. We saw what was happening with Exodus back then, um, and so we we started shifting to co-location. And while we were doing that. Uh, we dabbled a little bit in hosting, and we were talking to um, some hardware providers. We were buying servers, white box servers, and putting them together to do uh, very, very lightweight uh, managed services and hosting for some co-location customers. And one of the distributors was telling us about, oh, man, have you, have you heard of this company, Rackspace? Oh, they're really buying a lot of servers from us. You should really try to do what they're doing. They they're, they're doing a really good job. So that, that's how we heard about Rackspace. You know, they're down in San Antonio. We were in San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, and Houston. So we're all kind of in the same markets. Um, but we never went that direction. We, we, we didn't like the creditworthiness or the style of customer that we were seeing on the hosting side. We didn't think it was going to be a really good long-term prospect. We didn't trust the, um, the amount of staffing that you had to have in order to, to do that kind of thing. And we really thought the co-location was a better way to go, could be more automated, more efficient, um, and a foundational service that everybody would need and rely upon. And um, in 2000, uh, actually in 2001 was our grand opening of our first data center that we had built out. And that was really a conscious choice to to not do hosting and instead do co-location. And uh, I guess either way you look at it, that was probably a little too early. You know, we still had the the telecom bus to go through. Exodus had yet to go bankrupt. Equinix had yet to really rise in ascendancy. And, you know, we still saw, um, you know, uh, the digital packs was pretty important at the time, but um, had yet to see just how important all those exchange points and peering points were going to end up being in the long run so back uh, back up for me because you, you've you've answered a bunch of the questions that i had teed up for you and it's you're on a roll but i want to i want to hit something um key here which is you you made some very smart decisions right smart lucky probably a little bit of both right as every entrepreneur would say uh scaling your own business but by not having all that overhead by not taking in a bunch of customers that um, you know, who knew if they were going to survive long-term, you were able to, uh, limit some of the risk, but even within co-location, you still had customers coming in, deploying infrastructure, signing up long-term contracts, 
I got to imagine that, you know, a huge chunk of those customers went belly up and weren't able to pay for services. So how did you weather that storm of 2001, 2002, 2000? Oh man, you're totally right. Um, that was tough. That was a really tough phase. Um, we were careful. There was, I don't know if you remember Dr. Coop, remember the old, um, the uh, surgeon general, he, he was setting up a website. There was mall.com. They wanted to be the main shopping point online. Yeah. There were a bunch of, uh, VC backed. Um, I think that's when, uh, we, we saw the first, what was it? Like a pets.com kind of a thing where, or, or the, um, the first, uh, uh, grocery delivery services people were imagining. I think all these people had great ideas. They were just a, just too early and hadn't figured out the right ratio of funding to revenue and hadn't figured out, you know, the technologies were just too immature to be really effective and efficient at deploying and delivering the services they wanted to deliver. So no, you're, you're totally right. Um, we, uh, we had to face down some really arrogant and um, inappropriately confident uh, people who not only wanted to buy co-location from us, but wanted to buy it on really aggressive terms. Um, you know, they would come in with a real attitude, you know, cause they had some VC funding and they had these, they had dreams of sugar plums. They thought that they were going to be billionaires. Yeah, exactly. They're going to be the next yeah. whatever. Right. And they, then they came in and they, they saw this um, family owned family run business as being something they could push around and get whatever terms they wanted. Uh, and we had to say no to a lot of them and say, you know, that's fine. You've got all this funding, but where's your revenue going to come from? And, and, and we don't, we don't, we don't trust your business model. And that's a tough conversation to have, right? I mean, yeah. you want to be real artful and really, really careful about how you, how you say such things, but. Um, well, for what it's worth, um, you know, Todd Smith, who's a good, close personal friend of mine and business partner who I think, you know, um, down in, in, he's in Houston, but he's been through all your facilities. Yeah. He's taken you through a handful of your properties and one of the recurring themes and messages of the the culture of your business and just the the mantra of your business is that you you don't work with everybody and anybody just because someone's willing to sign paperwork doesn't mean that you even want them as a customer and when Todd first told me about that and I saw it play out with one of the opportunities that we had come across I really it made me step back because I I was used to the rest of the marketplace which I hate to say it they'll take any business you know and they all say that they won't but when push comes to shove they'll do whatever they can to get that contract signed. Um, and I, I respect that wholeheartedly. And I, I appreciate the, the, the culture that you have built in that business around knowing the value, knowing your worth, and also having the brains and the smarts to be selective about the types of customers you want to work with. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I'll say that, you know, I don't, in that sense, I don't, I don't judge any other business for how they run. Um, you know, there's, there's an, there's a fit for everyone. Every, there's a, there's a good appropriate client vendor relationship for everyone. Um, and yeah, we're, we have a, a strong identity. We have a strong sense of who we are and we just try to be straight with people. Um, this is who we are. This is the kind of customer that we work well with. And, 
and we we stick to our knitting and we don't begrudge anybody for who they are and who's appropriate for them to work with um yeah i mean we um we we we're, we're a value we're a high value provider and 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 we like to work with companies that um who value um the 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 levels of quality and service that we provide well the being private also gives you somewhat of a a different approach to the process where you know you may set sales goals and um targets that you hope and feel that can and should be achieved, right? But you're not subject to, uh, you know, private equity or venture capital or even a public market investors um, and analysts who are expecting certain returns, which lead to, uh, unfortunately, in some cases, if not many cases, companies making decisions not because it's truly in the best long-term uh, uh decision for the company, but in the short term, well, we need to hit our numbers to make the market happy or to make our investors happy until XYZ, you know, exit or um, mm-hmm. quarterly review, you know, goes down. You know, and I think part of that comes from um, observations during the go-go days of the early 2000s before the bust, where we saw VC-backed and PE-backed companies um, marching towards an exit, and we we our metaphor was that it was they're they're walking the plank. Um, you know, you you it seemed like there had to be a level of um, being disingenuous with your clients about what you could do for them, and to to do anything to get customers to sign up. While in the meantime, you know, there's a the flashy investment, the big push to look big and, and strong and powerful, attract customers by your sheer sexiness, and then gut your operations to get your EBITDA up in order to have a an exit. Um, and then you leave customers high and dry, sold on this premise of this amazing service, but then you had to gut everything. You had to fire half of the staff in order to make the numbers work in order to be able to get an exit with the right returns for the, for the people who had put their money in. And, and the, the employees too also kind of get yeah. hosed. I, I oh, they completely it. get hosed because <laughs> they get, they get sold on this promise of this, you know, charismatic and visionary founder of, you know, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to do great things. And then six months later, half of you are fired because you're holding us back for making all the money we want or something, you know, and we've never wanted to do that. And we've, one of the big things, one of the huge pieces of, um, of the value system of our owners and founders um, is loyalty. Um, and loyalty goes both ways. Um, you know, we, we call it writing for the brand. Um, we're, we're, we're all in this together. Um, we're loyal to each other and we take care of each other and our, our owners take care of us and we take care of them. And there's, we've never had a round of layoffs, you know, and, um, we, we never want to be in a position where we have to, and we're, uh, we're, we're steady as she goes. Yeah. So you're speaking basically a foreign language to 99% <laughs> of companies in our marketplace. And it's, 
um, you know, you almost look like an alien when you're talking like that because people are like, well, that's how is that even possible? That's not possible. They must not be making money. They must not be successful. Um, it, you know, those types of uh, the ability to act in such a way that you have uh, that type of culture. And it's not just lip service. And it, it was just ironically yesterday talking with a friend of mine who's starting a, a seed stage investment fund. And we were talking through how a lot of companies uh, will pump culture and spend time working on culture and creating this great culture um, who may be backed by cap, you know, venture capital or whatever type of capital. But at the end of the day, it's a short lived endeavor because it, the goal is to have some sort of exit down the road. Mm -hmm. And when they do that exit, culture goes out the window because whatever the culture is of the acquirer is the one that's going to be that's uh, right. taking over. And on top of that, you know, due to economies of scale, uh, mm -hmm. there may be, you know, a, a good half the number of the employees in the original company that helped get it from point A to point B who are no longer going to be part of the new entity. Uh, mm -hmm. So, it, so the, having lived in Silicon Valley for as long as I did, I saw that play out over and over again. And the disingenuous nature of this culture uh, pumping, pushing um, mantra and paradigm in these companies was just, it was heartbreaking for me. Um, and it just, it taught me a lot of lessons at a, thankfully a very young age as to how to do things and how not to do things. But uh, uh, again, hey, you know, but I, you know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, right, you know, right. again, it's like more power to them. You know, if that's what their thing is, that's what works for them. I mean, um, look, relationships are long-term things. Um, you know, how how I behave in the past is going to be your best prediction about how I'm going to behave in the future. Mm -hmm. So if you see us, you know, treating you well or treating vendors and partners and customers well, um, you know, you're going to think, well, you know, they're probably going to do the same thing next year and the year after that. And, you know, you, you earn your own reputation. One of the big things for us is um, I go to, I'll go to a conferences here and there and I'll go to a conference and I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, oh, you're with Data Foundry. Oh, I've heard about you guys. Yeah, you guys have, uh, you guys seem like a really solid company. And I'm like, they've never met me before. They've never, maybe they, they may not have ever met any employee before, but they, but before any of us ever meet them, they already have this perception of us being uh, a respectable firm. And, you know, that's because of what we do. Um, and if and if we didn't do what we do, then maybe their perception wouldn't be positive like that. So you, I, I, you, you earn your own reputation is, is, is what I have observed in life. When, when somebody has a bad reputation, there's generally a, a kernel of truth to it or, or a root. There was a, there's a starting point for that. that, that pushed out into the world and created that. And, you know, you got to take responsibility for, how you work with people all the time because that's that's what leads to those the the perceptions for everybody else out there about you. So staying on that topic, what what are some of because there's pros and cons to that approach. What are some of the the obstacles that you've had to overcome being a private business? You know, not taking hundreds of millions of dollars in private equity. Um, over the last, you know, 25 years? Um, obstacles we've had to overcome. I mean, um, obviously funding is, <laughs> is <laughs> nothing. I, I, um, 
it, it took me a while in my professional life to realize that um, uh, investment, pe- the people who control investment, the people who control money, uh, have a big hand in in the direction the economy goes because you know um, where they put the money is where investments happen, and you know nothing happens without that money. You know, our, um, it, we we had to find. Um, sources of, of money to do everything that we wanted to do. And our owners have been very, um, like I, I, call, I call them entrepreneurial. They've been willing to put a lot of money at risk over the years to, to build this dream of these data centers. Um, you know, in the stack, you, when, when people think of this, this industry, like this, this stack literally goes from below ground all the way into these abstract um, software packages or even models and concepts. And, you know, we play at the lower end of the stack and it's just a very, very capital intensive location in the stack. Um, Another thing that we've had to deal with over time has been that large companies tend to like working with other large companies. You know, your, your fortune 10, your fortune 50 companies, they um, they like to see balance sheets of their vendors and suppliers that have a certain weight to them. Um, and as a you know relative to the big guys in the industries, you know we we are on the smaller side um, compared to some of these national international behemoths. And there have been definitely been some challenges in overcoming those things, but we've been able to do it. Um, we ultimately we ended up doing that really incrementally um, by serving, first serving smaller customers well, then leveraging that into serving medium-sized customers well, and then leveraging that into serving large customers well. And then those large customers end up being referrals to each other. Um, so maybe a, a big company comes in and you know they've chosen their geography. They're going to be in Central Texas. They get a short list of who the major providers are in Central Texas. Uh, they do tours, they do RFPs, they go through the whole the whole ringer, put us through the ringer, put us through the whole process. And then at the end of the day, they may say, look, you look great. You hit all the check boxes. You're, you're an amazing firm. Uh, our finance department has some concerns over the size of the company that you are. You're not, you know, you're not public. You're not backed by some massive PE group. Um, and then, you know, we uh, introduce them to references from some other large customers who they respect. And those references say good things about us. And that overcomes their, their concerns on the finance side. Um, you know, we also, on, our, on the debt side, we work with blue chip uh, debt providers. And so that, that helps too. So every time we get a vote of confidence from a big player, whether it's financial side or customer side or, or even um, vendor supplier side, each one of those votes of confidence, it snowballs and it builds on it. And then they, they um, feed into you know, our reputation um, with new people who we would work with, new vendors, new customers. Um, and it's all, it's all been, you know, it's an overnight success that's 25 years in the making. You know, it's, it's, um, we win the big deals today because of all the work that happened over the last 25 years that brought us to this point. Understood. And it's, it's interesting how some customers, especially the large customers, as you're saying, will say, oh, well, you know, you're not publicly traded or you're not backed by 
XYZ in, in PE. But when you look at the balance sheets of the companies and look at how leveraged some of those publicly traded companies are right. relative to some of the, you know, smaller, you know, privately owned, or even if they're not privately, privately owned companies um, who just have a far more stable balance sheet. It's it's interesting that you know the numbers that they're looking at are size versus stability of the right firm, or how they define stability is just out of whack with reality. But that's to be said about you know most of the financial markets <laughs> right now. And, um, but let, let's get into the technology because I think that's sure. part of what I'm interested in and what I know a lot of our in, our uh, listeners are interested in. The and I got to say, and I hate to keep throwing all, all of these uh, these glowing things at you, but one of the top three facilities I've ever toured and I've toured about 400 some in the last God knows how many years, couple of years, um, is the facility I toured of yours in Austin, Texas. Um, and just the tour itself was so dialed. It was, uh, you know, it was very clear that there was a lot of thought, uh, an intentional thought and, um, almost social engineering, uh, that was put into that process. Uh, you know, with very specific stage things in very specific places. Uh, you could tell that, uh, I think it was Donovan that was uh, given the tour, wasn't reading off of a cue card, or I'm sorry, Dunaway, John Dunaway, that was giving the tour, that he wasn't reading off of a cue card, and he just knew things intimately about that property. Um, and it was just, it was one of, if not the best tours I've ever taken of a data center. Thank and you. Thank you for saying that. And when I train other other companies, I bring them back to and I, I reference actually that tour and, and explain how you guys did it and why it's so impactful. And it's not just about the wow factor. It's also about having very um, consistent messaging uh, and very clear messaging throughout the process and the tour. And if you have someone who's only been working at that company for you know, two months that really doesn't understand the business or the technology, that's the last person you should have giving that tour. And if right. you have a facilities manager who really does not understand how to speak to people and communicate with people, that person also should not be the one giving the tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But how, how did that come about? Let's, let's start with the tour process. And then I'd love to back into some of the tech that you guys have inside those properties. I mean, um, look, the tour thing is shamelessly stolen. Uh, we, uh, I mean, a, a whole part of our history we haven't talked about at all today is our foray into um, content distribution that we that we had um, a big focus on um, from uh, from the in the early two thousands to the late two thousands. We um, so we as we started as an dial up ISP, one of the key services that we provided to our dial up ISP customers. Was Usenet news groups. That was a you know that was one of the pillars. When you when you got an internet account, what did that include? That included a Unix shell account, that included email, and that included Usenet news group access. Like th those were the key features of having an internet account in the mid '90s. Um, our Usenet news groups servers were solid, and we had some other ISPs who wanted to buy access to it from us. So that they didn't have to run their own, and we did that, and then we eventually launched that as its own brand, as Giga News. So Giga News was a Usenet newsgroup provider that we started selling uh, individual account access to to anybody, not just wholesale to different ISPs. Um, and um, as Giga News uh, 
we had um, we had to store a lot of content and we had to distribute it um, at, at high volumes, at high throughput, all over the world. Now, Usenet has declined a lot in the as a percentage of the total internet traffic, but in the early 2000s, for example, when we, we connected to AM6, the Amsterdam Internet Exchange as Giga News, uh, probably in like 2003, I forget the exact year, but it was around then. And in, I want to say in that first year, uh, we, were, we were about 20% of all the AM6 traffic, um, which is, you know, now they're, Traffic levels on M6 were a lot lower back then than they are now. The exponential growth is just insane for that internet exchange. But back in the day, it was a big deal. So we had to, we 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 co-located Giga News into facilities across the world. So we literally in Hong Kong, San Jose, um, um, Ashburn, um, we were at, at at the London Internet Exchange at the DKIX in Germany. We co-located in, in, in a couple different places in Amsterdam. So we were in Telecity. Uh, we went into Equinix. We toured all of the providers in Amsterdam. Um, we toured uh, a bunch of providers in in California, in Hong Kong, in, in, in Ashburn, in Chicago, in Dallas. So as Giga News, we deployed across the world, and we got to go into, I got to go tour and visit world-class data centers around the world in the early and mid 2000s. Um, and so in the late 2000s, when it was time for us to build our own data center, we, we shifted our focus uh, away from Giga News a bit and uh, in back into Data Foundry. Uh, we were able to take what we had learned by visiting and touring and understanding these co-location data centers all over the place that were built by different people, you know, backed by different uh, owners, backed by different money, different perspectives. It was really, it was really interesting how each one of them had their own approach to data centers. Which, uh, which one then. was the most memorable or is memorable that you can think back on? <clears throat> I mean, you know, they're memorable for different reasons, right? But DuPont Fabros in Chicago, um, was uh, was just a, a really impressive facility, um, and that and, and Telecity Red Bus and what 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 Telecity was doing, fitting into their facilities in Amsterdam. Interaction in Amsterdam had really nice, really high quality facilities, uh, very very well thought out. Um, you know, they're all just growing like crazy, and they had to. They had to solve a lot of problems and, and deploy capital and, and get things up and running. And um, it was really a variety. You know, Hong Kong was a really interesting uh, thing because the real estate in Hong Kong is so crazy. All those, all those multi-tenant buildings and fitting in how you can. Um, so, you know, seeing the balance between the pragmatic um, in places like Amsterdam and Hong Kong versus like what DuPont was able to do in Chicago when they started from dirt and they could build it exactly how they wanted it from the ground up. Um, so, I mean, really, we, we, we took pieces. We appreciated elements of a lot of different things. and We took pieces from these different things and combined them together. So when we, when we designed the Texas One Data Center starting in 2009, 
um, it was honestly, it was kind of like the Homer car, you know, where Homer Simpson yeah. fantasizes about everything that he could possibly want in his car. Now I'll tell you that um, our build cost on Texas one was a little on the high side um, relative to a lot of the competitive co-location data centers. And I think that's part of why it had the impact that it does. When you go and tour it, you can, you, you see the money that was spent on it uh, that was put into it. Um, market pressures are really grinding that down. It's, it's tough to have that kind of budget nowadays on a dollar per megawatt basis. Um, you know, we've had to streamline a bit, but there are core elements of that, that we're absolutely not sacrificing. And the customer experience is a really key one of them because philosophically we look at it like we're, we're really similar to an airport in a sense. Um, the people who build and operate the airport um, are doing it because of the airlines. So the airlines use the gates and all of the airline passengers flow through the facility. And those are the people who are important. The, the airport people and operations itself um, are really, they're, they're, they're really supposed to be effectively invisible, right? They, they make the facility work for other people. So, you know, we make our data centers work for our customers. So, so the break rooms, the showers, the circulation, the parking, the navigation, the, um, the loading docks, all of those things are not there for our benefit. They are there for our customers' benefit so that they can be efficient and effective so that they can do a better job of serving their customers. If they can't do what they need to do, then we have failed. It's not just us doing what we need to do. It's our measure of success is whether our customers can do what they need to do. Um, and, and so that, you know, that's really what we focus on in those tours. Um, is oh, how, have things, how have things evolved? You made a comment that you've had to streamline a bit due to, you know, market realities. Uh, what specifically have you streamlined in, in how? Um, you know, um, I mean, it's, God, there's, it, it, it's, it's really a lot of things, a lot of little things. One, one of the things was um, we learned after that building that if you can build a more rectangular building with fewer zigs and zags on the exterior walls, uh, your shell is cheaper. Uh, and now maybe that means that your rooms don't fit quite as perfectly in internally, but you, you can still make it work. Um, the, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. How about from a power distribution? I mean, the, the design that I, th I believe you had uh, at one point was a true 2N, um, 2N uh, facility that also had a uh, kind of a shared bank of both UPSs and, and generators as well. Um, and I remember actually getting into an argument with someone at Cyrus One back in the day who said that, you know, this design <laughs> that they have is totally unique in the marketplace and there's no one else doing it. And I was like, well, actually, well, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think, but, I think I saw a patent application from Raging Wire for a distributed redundant system so right. um you know You're right if, if, it wasn't cyrus one it was raging wire i apologize but keep going oh well i mean and that i, I you know i i i cannot comprehend how anybody would look at the 
what has been deployed across the country, across the world prior to that, and somehow think that a distributed redundant system was um, novel. Uh, that's that that's far from my experience. Yeah. Anyway, um, no, no, no. So. Um, no, we we don't have any two N. There never has been two N. Um, we did. We do have. It was. We have two UPSs per powertrain per lineup. Um, but those UPSs are for capacity, not for redundancy. It's it's two UPSs worth of capacity. Does that make sense? Gotcha. So from a streamlining perspective, though, the I mean, part of that streamlining for some companies is well, all this infrastructure costs a lot of money. So are there ways that we can go about, and at the end of the day, if someone has built-in redundancy within their applications from a DR perspective, do we really need to build out all the infrastructure to provide that type of redundancy in the building? Are there ways that we can provide similar types of redundancy um, without having to invest in so much infrastructure? And then, you know, there's creative ways to market and spin that to make it sound unique and novel. Yeah. I, I think we're still a ways away from um, any any sort of mass market reduced redundancy in any data centers. Um, it's a very, very rare and special case, I think, that you can build a data center without redundant UPS or without, without backup generators. Um, you know, maybe someday the software will be so good and so commoditized and so streamlined that you have a software level of um, load, the ability to move workloads at the drop of a hat that you can have no redundant UPS, no generators, no, you know, those, none of those things. But we're, we're a long ways away from that, I think. Um, so redundancy is here to stay for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, one of, one of the places that we shifted to save money was we went from uh, custom switchgear with draw-out breakers and PL PLC-controlled breaker systems back to um, um, the, I, I forget the term, the non-draw-out breakers um, uh, switchboards um, with uh, discrete ATSs. Um, having, using more commercial versus industrial and using more commodity parts is a key way to bring the cost of your supply chain down. And the reality is the quality is good enough. Uh, we do very, one place that we have not done anything to try to save money on is commissioning. Uh, commissioning is so valuable um, in, in any facility that, that uh, we, we only we only do the most thorough and the highest quality commissioning that's available. Um, but in terms of the components, shifting from industrial to commercial and shifting to more commodity components uh, does make a big difference. So at Texas One, we went in initially, so that's all water, water-cooled chillers. It's all York chillers. They're fantastic, super high quality, super reliable, super efficient. Um, but the reality is when you do a TCO on them and how air-cooled chillers have become more and more efficient as time has gone on and just the sheer volume and um, ease of maintenance on the air-cooled chillers is that it's, it's hard not to use air-cooled chillers nowadays. 
the water-cooled chillers may be slightly more efficient, but they don't ROI. They don't pay for themselves. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of cool tech, right? But is does the uh, does <laughs> is the juice worth the squeeze? As I hear people say over and over again. Um, the going back real quick, you mentioned commissioning, and I know. Uh, I know you know that term. I know that term, but I know some and probably a lot of our listeners may not understand what commissioning is and why that's so important. Um, in fact, I only learned about commissioning a few years back when we were engaged on a consulting engagement with a commissioning firm uh, that was in the middle of, of trying to be acquired uh, that needed to do some market intelligence. Um, and I've really dug deep into that into that space. Um, but what, what is commissioning and, uh, if you could break it down for people and it digestible. Yeah, sure. You know, I think it's funny how in this world we, um, we tend to take things for granted that, that things that you see just work, um, things that you interact with in life just work. You know, you, you walk into an office building, you walk up to a bank of elevators, you know, you kind of figure the elevator is just going to work. Um, you get in your car, you turn it on, you generally figure your car is going to work. Um, the reality is that when things are built, especially for the first time, much of it actually doesn't work because there's, you have to do so many things right in the assembly and construction of something um, there's, so that it actually works when you, when you first turn on. There's, there's kind of a, a joke in programming or, or a conventional wisdom in programming around this idea that you know, if you could write a piece of software, if it, as a programmer, you could sit at a keyboard all day and bang out code all, code all day long. And then when you're done, you know, hit a button and it runs and it works. It's like, that doesn't exist. That's impossible because there's no way around it. Mistakes get made that prevent it from working right. And commissioning is the process in a any facility you can commit it's not just data centers it's any facility commissioning is a process for any new constructed facility where after the electricians and the plumbers and the pipe fitters and you know the mechanical guys are all gone they 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 put all their work in they step back they dust their hands they look proudly upon their work commissioning is when you flip the switch and turn it on and see what breaks so you 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 run it through its paces, and uh, it. I'm simplifying to say you turn it on. Really, what a, a a commissioning agent is the person who is responsible for coming up with a hundred different test cases of all of the uh, systems that have been installed into a facility, and uh, very pragmatically, very uh, process-wise, step through all of those different permutations of the different test cases and perform the test and write down the results of what happened. And in doing that, identify all the places that the systems are not working correctly, which then turn into um, a commissioning punch list that your trades come back in and fix all of the work that they did wrong. I mean, it's every it's all kinds of things like a damper on a air handling system maybe sticking or it may be installed backwards you know i mean it, it, crazy stuff you wouldn't believe sometimes but you don't know it until you go and use it and you don't want to be using it on your first customer 
you want to use it in a scripted testing scenario where you can think through all the different ways it might be used, try them out, write down what happened, and then use that to um, either fix what's remaining to be fixed or to confidently say, no, it works correctly. I'm ready to serve customers because it, it properly works the way it's supposed to. How long does that process generally take providers before they can confidently say, okay, we're ready to rock? So there's different phases of commissioning. It's actually interesting. Um, when you look at commissioning as really being a, um, a quality check, um, it's commissioning actually starts very early in the construction process. There is a phase of commissioning. I believe it's level two commissioning, as it's called, is that when equipment shows up on site, somebody needs to go and open it up and go through it with a fine tooth comb and confirm that whatever equipment showed up on site actually matches the purchase order. And the purchase order can be have 10 pages of detail. And it can say all sorts of things about what things are included, what the size of something is, what the uh, arrangement of something is. So level two commissioning happens before something is even, before equipment's even installed. So, you know, if you have a, a chiller and the chiller is supposed to come with some, some sensors and some valves and some control points and things, you know, level two commissioning will have a person sit there and go through a checklist and verify that it came from the factory properly configured. So in that sense, those components of commissioning happen um, in parallel with construction. Now, the big part of commissioning that most people really think of, the real visible um, part of commissioning, happens at what we call level four and level five commissioning. And those are when we do the system tests and the integrated system tests. Um, and the level four and level five commissioning is when is really the point in time where the trades back away and the commissioning agent takes over and starts turning generators on and off, starts hitting UPSs, uh, starts hitting tra static transfer switches and PDUs. And that process of the level four and level five commissioning typically takes somewhere around two weeks. Um, but that's two weeks of uh, just grinding through absolutely everything, 12 hour days, a lot of times. Yeah. Um, a lot of people on site um, just supporting the process. One of the fun pieces of that puzzle uh, in that phase is the the load banks. Uh, that are oh, yeah. There. I used to ask, well, how do they simulate, you know, megawatts worth of load coming into the building? Can mm -hmm. you walk listeners through what, what that is and how those things operate? Sure. You, you take a large pile of money and you put it on the floor and you light it on fire and it, and it produces a lot of heat. Now, you, you take... Um, there's really, you take a bunch of uh, inside out ovens. Uh, you, the load banks, all load banks are, are, are resistive devices. There's these boxes that have resistors in them that literally all they do is convert electricity into heat. And they've got fans on them to blow the heat so they, so they don't catch fire. So they don't, you know, um, they don't overheat themselves. But we'll take, um, so like in a power distribution system, your UPS, say your UPS outputs one and a half megawatts of power. 
that's going to be stepped down into uh, power, what we call PDUs, uh, power distribution units that each um, can carry about 500 kW of load. So one, you know, three PDUs, let's say per UPS. And then each of those PDUs is, has its power distributed out through power panels. And each, say on a, on a 500 kW PDU, you might have 10 power panels. So we will take um, one or two um, load banks and hook them up to the power panels. And that tests the electrical connections from the power panels through the PDUs, through the UPSs, back up through the transformers, you know, all the way back up to through the utility. And those load banks literally just take the electricity through that system and convert it to heat. And part of what you're testing commissioning is also the cooling system. So the heat from the load banks is cooled by your air handlers and your chillers and your, your chiller, chilled water system. So as the CTO of Data Foundry, you've seen lots of evolution occur within your facilities. And as you, as you also mentioned, having toured through all these other properties where you guys have points of presence, um, you've seen all kinds of different tech. Uh, and again, the evolution of that tech. Are, are things continuing to evolve in the industry from a data center infrastructure perspective? Uh, some, some make the argument that it's really stagnant, that there really aren't all that many new technologies coming out that are, are really game changers. Uh, but I'm curious what your take is on, on that. Um, I'm in the camp of seeing I, I it seems to me like there are diminishing returns at this point in terms of data center technologies um but i think you can get caught unawares if you think it's actually stagnant and really what happens is the innovation sort of changes locations um you know um the, the the building block, my perspective is that the building block of a data center power system is tied around the size of the chiller. And you end up matching up the your generator size and your PD and your UPS size and your transformer size all end up, end up um, um, reconciling with the capacity of a single chiller. So, you know, if we were to see an evolution, you know, a, a change. It would, it would, it would really help if we had some um, higher capacity uh, commercial grade chillers. Um, but you know, we, there was an a pillar just had an announcement where they're releasing something like a three megawatt rotary UPS, and that's pretty interesting um, because that would mate up well with two chillers. And generally, bigger building blocks in a data center are more cost-effective. There's less labor to install. There's more efficiency in assembling the components. I mean, and, and in, in the data center world, there's there really is this massive bifurcation happening. Um, what's happening in Ashburn in Northern Virginia is literally like it's on another planet. The size and scale of the data centers being built in Northern Virginia are like unlike stuff that's happening elsewhere. Um, and there, there, there's stuff that they are doing and, and learning in terms of scale and supply chain and delivery methods for constructing the data centers um, that I think 
are groundbreaking and will probably permeate out to the rest of the world. Um, but on the other hand, there's things that they're doing that they need to do that nobody else needs to do. You know, if you're going to build a five megawatt data center or a 10 megawatt data center in Sacramento, that's a completely different ball game from building a 50 or a hundred megawatt data center for a hyperscaler in Northern Virginia. Um, the, the layouts are different. The, the technologies or the, the, the way the components are assembled are just very different. Um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that leading up to this conversation about what are the game changers? What are the, where are the revolutions happening? Um, and I think it's really more about instead of like big visible things, instead of like a big like, oh, here's a um, new UPS technology that's going to shrink it to one-tenth of the size or something. Instead of those things, it's a lot of little things. It's a lot of um, engagement through the supply chains, alignment. Um, there's a certain amount of commoditization that happens with the maturity of the whole uh, ecosystem of the vendors and, and trades and designers and architects and engineers all converging. And because of them all coming to a more shared mindset about how data centers are designed and built and delivered, um, there's going to be a lot of small um, incremental shavings of, of unnecessary uh, components or unnecessary processes that together are really polishing this data center product and incrementally making it faster to deliver, lower in cost to deliver, um, easier to maintain, easier to work, work on. Um, I wouldn't say rely, I, you know, you would think that you would say reliability would be a topic there too, but in my experience, reliability isn't really an issue. Reliability tends to be kind of overblown. It's, it's not that hard to make things reliable. That's not like a big challenge. The big challenge is really how do we streamline the delivery of it all? And that's where there's an evolution happening in the ecosystem to, to accomplish that. That's, that's sort of a rising tide lifting all boats in that sense. Who's, who in your mind is leading that charge and really on the forefront of that, uh, that wave right now? Um, I mean, I'm not going to name any names. There, there's, there are definitely um, some design and engineering firms who have been really, um, I'd say, lucky. They've put a lot of years of work into this world, and they are at a point now where they're seeing the fruits of that, that long-term investment. But they, they have the good fortune, let me say, of being at the center of a lot of these conversations and are able to um, see across um, a lot of different uh, silos and see ways to bring them together. Um, you know, there, there are, there's your, some, some obvious names and people, some of your big publicly traded guys, um, some old teams that exited and have come back. Um, and, you know, there's, it's, it, it, I mean, in my world, it was it's it's sort of the the usual suspects, um, but there's a it, not quite a cabal, but a um, you know people who all kind of know each other. 
mm-hmm. and are are working together to to improve things. Yeah. Um, have you ever come across people asking you to deliver liquid cooling of some sort? You know, every once in a while, we'll have a little thing float across, but it never pans out. Yeah. Why? Why does it never pan out? Because I've, I've engaged with a handful of folks on this conversation, and I'm yet to see a deployment in a commercial data center. Actually, I think I saw one in Austin um, not too long ago. But um, um, yeah, there's you- there's a, there's some folks here doing some proof of concept stuff into the immersion cooling here in Austin, and it's pretty neat. Um, the, the reality is, people a lot of people overestimate their load, the their IT load, you know, the, the nameplate ratings on equipment is, you know, way higher than the actuals. Right. And people also tend to underestimate the capability of air cooling. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're, we, we could easily cool 20 KW a cabinet and higher just with air. Extremely efficiently, right? Uh, I mean, pretty efficiently. The, um, the, the flip side is, would the significant investment in a water cooling system uh, have enough of an efficiency improvement to pay for itself? And I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Yeah, there's. I would love if anyone's listening who wants to engage on that topic that has hard data. Uh, I'd love to talk with you about that because it yeah is... and 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 you have to factor in all the all the components of that too it's not just um you know fan energy versus pump energy or something it's there's um it's 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 the whole the whole system has to come together to provide water cooling um in a more tightly coupled way where air cooling is like you can bring any piece of equipment you want in and plug it in and it'll just work um, and that kind of flexibility has tremendous value. Well, are there any other interesting technologies that you've seen come across on the infrastructure side? And maybe maybe let's move beyond the infrastructure side, right? So a lot of the conversations I'm having these days is around uh, interconnection and software-defined interconnection, which isn't a new concept, but in how it's coming to market and being delivered in the market through the likes of your Packet Fabric, your Megaport, uh, Equinix ECX, um, Pureport, you know, th- these different companies that are kind of providing it as a service with that full visibility. Um, is that something that you see change in the game for, for your firm and customers? No, we don't. Um, um, I mean, I think that's cool and all. I, I do feel like that still is um, a relatively niche market. Um, you know, we, the, 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 it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you remember Starline Busway and, and those, you've seen the, the bus power distribution systems. Those are, um, so for anybody listening, the um, Starline Busway and, and, and other people like them have developed a way of having um, a metal, like uh, a power distribution bus, like a physical uh, channel that you could mount in the ceiling, and it would go, it would go across, a, a, it would it would go down a row, it would go down a long path, 
And anywhere within that bus, you could plug in, you could socket in an electrical outlet. And that means that you had real flexibility in where you could deliver electrical capacity to anything along that route. And people would use them in labs or in workshops or in um, manufacturing facilities. And, and, and there was a, a, a bit of a move to use them in data centers where you could sort of flexibly deliver power to each of the cabinets um, in a row by just plugging whatever socket you happen to need at the time into this bus that, that sits above the cabinets. Um, and what ends up happening though is in a, in a data center environment with the Starline busway is that you, you plug your socket in and you deliver power to the cabinet and then you don't touch it for three to five years. So you spend a whole bunch of money up front to have this real flexibility on the ability to move things at a moment, at the drop of a hat. And then the hat never drops and you, you, you really effectively don't change it for a very long time. So you spend a lot of money on flexibility and never end up using it. Um, and I think in terms of network connectivity and interconnections, the vast majority of deployments in data centers need very little flexibility in terms of their network capacity, their network access. You run a cross connect to them, you plug it in, and they're going to use it for years. Um, and this idea that, well, if I run some fiber to you and we could you know, build out some channels on that, some VLANs or, or what have you, and then you can interconnect with any carrier you want, that sounds great. And I would suspect that in the vast majority of cases, people would say, okay, great, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this really cool self-service interface, and I'm going to set up a connection through this one carrier. And then that's it. And then after that five minutes of self-service, that carrier stays online and, and providing that service for a very long time. Um, so what did that flexibility, what did that investment in flexibility really buy you? I think that a lot of times people end up overpaying for flexibility, thinking they're going to do something that they end up not actually doing or they yeah. end up not actually changing. So you would, I think you can tell I'm a little bit of a, um, pessimist, I guess, or more of a, I, I think of myself as a realist, but it's, it comes across pretty negative. I think it has a use and a place. And I think the place is, is for the people who do uh, move their capacity around frequently um, or do have needs of, of uh, widely varying uh, capacity from varying providers. And I think that's not very many people. It's, I would say the same is true with a lot of the cloud services, right? Yeah. Cloud hosting services. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of hype, a lot of money put into the marketing, the promotion of it. Uh, a lot of engineers convince their uh, CEOs, CFOs, CTOs to migrate to the cloud uh, because it was hot, so hot right now. Um, and a lot of them wanted to gain that experience and how to manage those workloads in the cloud. But at the end of the day, do those workloads need to be in the cloud? And what was, were there any cost savings uh, for doing so to have that type of flexibility when you have static workloads, as you're saying, and we're static, right. uh, consistent needs for services, there isn't a cost savings unless you're dealing with, you know, long-term arch archival storage at, you know, massive scale, uh, there really isn't a advantage right. to, to be in those types of environments. Right. Yeah, I think so. So the, one of the other questions I have uh, for you, given your, 
your experiences is can you recall a moment from your early career path where you learned a very valuable lesson that has kind of stuck with you throughout the rest of your career? So for those <laughs> listeners who are, um, you know, young in their career in their twenties or, or early thirties, you know, in the industry, what, what's some knowledge you can drop for them? I mean, if you've been around long enough, you will eventually see everything go wrong. And so being, having the, um, you know, realizing that you can't trust anything. And I'm really talking systems. I'm really talking systems here. I'm not, um, nothing, nothing personal. People will fail. Equipment will fail. Suppliers will fail. Everything fails eventually. Um, and that's, okay, you know, I'm not judging anybody or anything. These are normal. But to think that something's not going to fail is uh, setting yourself up. Uh, so um, doing the right double checking, the right testing, the right maintenance, the right, um, you know, making the right investments into um, being prepared having contingency plans, having, um, having redundancies, resiliency, being, being prepared for that failure is, uh, is very wise in, in my opinion, you know, and, um, I, I think on a, like just a professional level, this industry as a whole, isn't that big when it comes to the people. I mean, Sean, you, you see it, you've, it's not just, Sean, you talk to a lot of people, but I bet that the people you talk to, maybe, I don't know if you're surprised or not at this point, but a lot of people you talk to, they know each other, mm -hmm. right? There's all these cross connections and interconnections across people. Um, and I said earlier, you earn your own reputation. And um, I think for people just to, Remember that, um, be honest, but be kind. That's, uh, that's a good one. Um, one of the other key pressing questions I have for you, given the fact that data foundry is private, you know, and you guys have probably been inundated with calls from firms who have wanted to acquire or help you grow or, you know, feed, feed you capital so that you can make acquisitions. What what is the plan for Data Foundry over the next decade? You know, are you guys going to continue to uh, slowly uh, make the moves that you've made, or you know what what can you share as to where the company is headed? Um, you know, our 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 owners are are um, really pleased and really happy with what we've done, and they they believe in the space, and um, they they want to. They want to do more. It's up and to the right. It's um, it's a it's a um, it we've we've built something here together that uh, we're all really proud of, and um, we see great prospect prospects for the future, and just want to stick it stick in the space and and keep growing it. Well, what is a how do I say this? What so I was just at CES 
in Las Vegas. Have you ever been to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show? I haven't. I've seen pictures, you know, and I've heard a little bit about it. It's, it, is, it, is it really big? I mean, it, it, they make it sound like it's really big. Absolutely massive. They take over the entire Sands uh, Conference Center, like all of it, both floors of it in every conference room. And they take over the entire Las Vegas Convention Center. And then they take over uh, another one that's right next to the Las Vegas Convention Center. I think wow. Mayfield. So it's massive. I was there. Okay. Um, I walked about, I kid you not, about seven miles on a Thursday from 9 a.m. until it shut down around 5.30 p.m. And I walked through all of it. Wow. Um, and because I'm just crazy and I, I wanted to be there because I haven't been there in a couple of years. I think anyone who is a geek even slightly should attend it just to check it out at least once. Um, thankfully due to, uh, some of the contacts and relationships I have, I can get, you know, access without having to pay the $1,700, uh, fee or whatever it is, 700, 700, 1700, something like that. It's, it's expensive. But anyway, it, it was mind blowing to see the level of, uh, advancements in robotics technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, really is what stood out for me and whether it's drones or autonomous vehicles or, you know, robots that are, you know, humbly, I think in the next couple of years, almost every fast food restaurant is going to have, you know, well over half of the staff that's there day to day replaced by robots. Um, and they're going to be in restaurants. They're going to be in a lot of different places um, because it's, it's that smart and it's that advanced right now. But um, from a technology perspective, have you noticed, like, what is some new, cool, mind-blowing stuff that you've come across over the last couple of weeks, months, you know, years? Like, what is something that you looked at that really made you stop and say, wow, that's, that's cool? I mean, yeah, I think the advances in robotics. You've seen those videos of the Boston Dynamics um, robots. They're, they're pretty impressive. Well, yeah, unfortunately... At CES, actually, in, in oh, did you did you get to see one live? That's that's was it as cool in person as as they are online? Well, it wasn't the standing one, right? That's jumping around because those okay, not the one that does the backflips and stuff. Yeah, yeah not the one that does the backflips. It was the dog, right? It was the walking dog, um, right? That was moving around. Uh, that's the one that I saw. But I've that to your point, that video that came out, God knows how long, year ago or so, if not more. Uh, at this point of the the robot freestanding without an external power cord attached to it, running and jumping on things. is just one of the problems I have is that there's a parody account that is doing, that does Boston dynamics parody videos. And I get them mixed up in my brain sometimes because they look, it's like, I can believe it. The parody looks like, like I, I could believe that the parody actually being real, it's very dystopian, but, it, but they're pretty funny too. Yeah. That one where the robot, uh, is like shooting firearms and told to yeah. shoot the dog, shoot, shoot the robot dog and refuses to shoot the robot dog and grabs yeah. it and runs away. You see that one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, thankfully my brain learned within a few seconds that something was up and I read the name of it and it wasn't Boston dynamics. It was like, there was some, you know, yeah, clearly, clearly a parody account. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well done parody. Very well done. But you know, yeah, we just, how long until the parody becomes reality? Yeah, I mean, the advances in AI are are pretty amazing. Some of the things that are happening, the you know, it was it's been a while now, not 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 in the last weeks or months, but um, the AI that you know, it, it's interesting. Part of AI is not just what can it accomplish, but how quickly can an AI be trained 
in order to do something. And so like, I think it was like Google or somebody who developed a system that could learn the rules of Go, that game, the, the marble game, um, and beat by a landslide any human champion, let alone any any computer champion that, that existed at the time. And it could do the entire thing starting from a blank slate. It could do the entire thing in like 48 hours. So starting with a, a, a blank slate neural network, learn from scratch how to play a game better than anything and everything else that exists that can play that game, computer and human alike. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's pretty interesting. I mean, with all these things, it's like, well, how is that going to apply to the real world? Um, how is the Boston Dynamics dog going to be applied in the real world? And I, I really feel like, I mean, it's almost like um, science fiction can't keep up, right? I mean, sci- the the people who write science fiction, it's the, the pace of, of actual development is so rapid that the people whose jobs it is to just use their imagination to creatively forecast how those technologies might be used, it, it could be really challenging. Um, the, the William Gibson novel, The Peripheral, made an impact on me. It's very memorable. Um, and it, it tries to do some, some forecasting of what a super advanced technological society might look like. Um, and it's, you know, pretty, pretty intense, uh, pretty crazy. So yes, it I don't is. know. I, I've heard, I've heard that Bill Gates said that people overestimate what they can do in one year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 and so we're sitting here at January of 2020, Sean. We need to sync back up in January of 2030 and ask the question, did it play out the way you thought it would? Well, I've, or I've or, or, or will, we, will we be surprised? Yeah, I've tried to stop making those super long-term predictions um, and be grateful and appreciative of what's going on today. I can see trends occurring in the marketplace, in the industry, but when you truly stop, you know, it's, it's the, the infamous, uh, you know, toad in the boiling pot of water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I try to pull myself out of that pot and look at it and say, what the heck is going on here? Um, but I'm not surprised, you know, it, I was a poli sci econ double major in college, graduated in 02, and I actually did one of my theses for poli sci was how science fiction serves as a tool to prepare, uh, okay. to prepare us for what is coming. Um, and that right. those writers like Isaac Asimov and like Frank mm-hmm. Herbert um, are doing us all favors by helping us to understand how the world will be shaped and can be shaped such that we can think through those uh, now and start to lay groundwork to prevent um, horrific things from happening, such as you know Asimov's three rules of robotics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if we are not thinking through how we need to, at the core bioslave level of these robots, put some type of rules in place to prevent them from annihilating us all, <laughs> we will be annihilated. <laughs> Because in 24 hours, it can go from knowing nothing about Go, which is, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of arts in that game. In fact, I've found oh, yeah. that game, right? 
that is yeah. not just a uh, a logic and reason game. That is, there's an art to that game, and uh-huh. how they how this robot and using AI and to your point, uh-huh. forty eight hours was able to beat the top player in the world. Uh huh. Is again frightening, fascinating, uh, awe inspiring, uh, but it also leads you to think and believe. You know, we are living in the future today. Like people think they go through their day and it's pretty monotonous, but that that tech is available. And part of what I appreciate about CES and why I go every few years is you can see how things are evolving and what's becoming commercially viable. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the magic. Yeah. I mean, some things, one thing can be great academically, but yeah, until, um, I mean, I, you know, I've been in plenty of restaurants. I know what the, what the management of the restaurant is faced with dealing with. I mean, if you want to have a robot that can replace people in a restaurant, it's got to be kind of plug and play. You got to be able to drop it in, spill grease on it, press a button and it still has to work. Yep. You know? Yeah. yeah, So is is it right? How reliable is the worker, the human who doesn't show up because of X, Y, Z reason, right. Or is having a shitty day and is rude to customers. Whereas that robot can come in, you know, take an order, put the order in the system, pick the order up and deliver it back to the table and or be in the back uh, kitchen, just simply taking the frozen stuff out of the packaging, putting it in the microwave, pulling it out of the microwave, putting it on a patty, wrapping it up and putting it on a shelf, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all. It's here today. It's literally here today and you go to taiwan you go to singapore you go to dubai you go to um, other places in the world and they've already adopted that's the crazy stuff they've already adopted this stuff it's already in commercial settings it's just not right in front of our face and because it's not right in front of our face and it's not in the news and it's not being pushed out to us we don't think that it's here and that it's it's out there but it's it's out there and it's coming yeah, think of the think of the um, the energy that's going to require the power, the literally the power distribution. Mm-hmm. The think about the data that they're going to generate that has to be stored and, and analyzed and processed, and the insights that people are going to be able to get out of out of all of that data. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty massive change to not just the consumer, but it's a massive change on the infrastructure side too. That the the impacts it's going to have, and then and then the snowball effect from that, you know, as as that drives investment into the infrastructure behind the scenes, that will be building massive platforms that can also probably be used for other things as well that can solve other problems also. Um, so you have these crazy, you know, cause and effect pathways that are going to flow out from that. We need a great science fiction writer, man. <laughs> If I have the time, man, if, if I can have someone <laughs> drop a bunch of money on my plate just to focus on that for a year, I'd, I'd love to do that. But uh, I also, if I could have someone drop a bunch of money on my plate just to do interviews like this and, and do this podcast, <laughs> I'd also do that. Uh, but thank you so much, Ed. I appreciate you taking the time. I have one last question, which I know you know is coming, having listened to the podcast before. But uh, do you do you love data centers? Yes, I love data centers. Right, man. Well, thank you so much. If someone wanted to get a hold of you or follow you, um, are you, you know, are you active on any of the social media accounts or? I'm not. I'm really not. I'm not. I'm. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm not out there very much. But uh, I don't know. Call the company. 
You, I can okay. be reached. Right. All right. Well, you got my you number. You, you, yeah. you can get me. Okay. Well, contact me then, people who are listening, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll vet it and qualify it and make sure that uh, it's oh. something worth your time. <laughs> Thanks. Right, Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you, Sean. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.